You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here on a beautiful day. It's been a great weekend. I trust that you're having a good day and that you're seated next to some awesome people. How many are seated next to some awesome people? There you go. There you go. You know how to make things work in your life, don't you? Anyway, so today, listen, I know that you look up top and you see, hey, he is risen. This sounds like pastor is continuing on with the Easter message. You are correct. Because if you haven't recognized, there's a little more activity that happens after Jesus rises from the dead, right? And so we've been in a theme of the Gospel of Matthew all the way back to uh, the uh, month of February, March, and then part of this month. And so we're actually wrapping up the Gospel of Matthew. But what we're looking at today is a, is a, is a part of the story that Matthew continues to tell after Jesus has risen. And a lot of this text is familiar, so would everybody stand for the reading of the word, if you would? And we're going to be going to Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 through 10, and then verses 16 through 20. Let's read this together. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. So we're going to pick it up in verse 16 now. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray that the work that you have been sent to do, the ministry of Jesus to continue among us, I pray that that happens. And I pray you speak to us as we listen with our ears. I pray also that your voice would speak to the hearts, to the motives, to the, to the seat of understanding that is in us. You know the conversation, Holy Spirit, that you need to have with every person in this room. And I pray that it happens in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. You can be seated. So as we're wrapping up this series, and we're specifically now looking at just some of the few events that has happened after Jesus' resurrection, I think it's critical for us to understand, again, going back into this context, because as I often have said before, is text without context leads to pretext. It's, it does take time to set up the context of a particular scripture, and one of the challenges that I always have is this. I have things that I really like, but it may not be always necessary to relay everything to you, but sometimes I just want to tell somebody. 
And so I might go overboard on the context and the historical things. And this is, this is certainly one of those. This passage that we read today is a frequent passage that is preached in churches. I mean, because it's sort of like a mandate. It's a mantra of the church. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. But what I want us to do is, hey, can we just pause it a minute and back up and go, do you realize this was written to a bunch of Jews whose city has been leveled and a million other people have been slaughtered and there's no chance for them to go back home and have a life? And you kind of go, what does that have to do with what they're going through? And I'll just give you a little tidbit. What you start to see is this. They recognize going back to their homeland, going back to their city is not an option. And it's like anybody else. If I can't go home, what's my next move? What do I do? And notice what the text says. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Making disciples. Basically, what, and I'm sort of getting ahead of my story, but suddenly you start to read that verse a little bit different, right? You start to go, oh, they were saying, so what are we supposed to do? And what he's saying is this. God's telling you to go. You can't go home. That's not the end of your life. It's actually the rebooting and the restarting of your life. And what you see is this, and if you, if you just kind of pause a minute, we know that the Jews dispersed all over the world, right? And we, we see that in World War II during the great persecution by Nazi Germany, that coming out of that great war, they were given their life 2,000 years later, but for 2,000 years, they were displaced all over the world. But here's the problem. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. They went into all the world. They just didn't preach the gospel. Right? So God gave direction and purpose. So, I, so that's why I say text without context leads to pretext. It's just easy to go, that's a discipleship verse. But when you look at it, you're going, wow, that's just more than discipleship verse. That's like direction. He's saying, don't even try to reclaim your land. Don't even try to go home. Don't even try to fight these Romans. It's not going to happen. Go reboot your life all over the world. It's time to disperse. It's time. And this other part, I'm kind of adding a little, I'm giving you a bonus phrase. Is that all right? See, what happens is this. Text without context can lead to a con. Think about it. It's true, right? One of the things that you got to do to pull a con is get something out of context, right? You, you ignore it or you twist it. And one of the things that can lead to a con is taking something out of its context. Now, it doesn't mean it will happen, but it's, a, it's an insurance. It's a protection to always set up the context to prevent a con from ever happening. And everybody said amen. All right? So here's what we begin to learn about the story. Until this particular passage is read with the mindset of those to whom Matthew was writing, there are insights that can't be gleaned. So it's really important, like, okay, let's get our mindset in here. These people are extremely disappointed because they were at Passover when the Romans sacked the city, knocked their temple in, destroyed the city, killed a million people, and now everybody's on the run if they didn't get captured and turned into a slave. And the question is, and where was God? How could he let that happen to us? See, you find the same, that people said back then the same thing that people say today when they see bad things. Where's God? How could God let that happen? If there was a God, why didn't he stop this from happening? It's the same question that is repeated over and over and over in people's minds when they don't have an understanding of what faith does. Faith does not always guarantee that you have smooth sailing. We somehow think that's the insurance card. We have a deal, God. 
I go to church, I pay tithe, you protect me. It's like, well, you know, it's just, it's not, your tithe is not uh, insurance premiums. <laughs> I know, but I know, but people treat it that way. After everything I've done for God, how could he let this happen to me? That's what people say. After everything I've done for God and been for God, how could he let this happen to me? And it's almost that, you know, he's supposed to favor me. Well, I'm not saying that God doesn't protect us and God doesn't help us, but you're kidding yourself. You are, listen, you aren't in heaven yet. You still live on the battlefield. That's why it says put on the full armor of God. So we take hits in life, and that's what it is. Our faith helps us to deal with hits that we take in life. And this is no different. He's trying to show them the reason they've lost purpose, they've lost meaning, they've lost hope, is the fact that they haven't received Christ. They rejected God's Son. How's God supposed to help them when they've rejected His Son? Remember, Jesus said, nobody goes to the Father except through me. So he's showing them there's purpose, there's hope, there's meaning, but it all begins with this. You're going to go into all the world, but God's got a mission for you, but you're going to have to do that with Jesus in your life. And so let's begin to look at these things. I'm going to give you a number of things related to the scriptures. So number one, let's read this out loud. Fear sabotages our ability Fear is a sabotager of, our, of, of, of our, our expressions of faith. What you probably don't recognize is, is how many times the women had to be told, fear not, and Jesus is resurrected. I don't know about you, it just seems like if Jesus is resurrected from the, day, uh, the dead, that just is a no-brainer, like, here we go. I mean, that's not just launch sequence, that's launch, baby. And notice this, verse 10, then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. In verse 7, when they showed up, the angel said the same thing. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Then go quickly in telling his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. So in verse 5 and 7, they've been told, don't be afraid. The angel, he's risen from the dead. Three verses later, Jesus shows up and has to tell them, do not be afraid. Now, this shows what happens because of our human nature. We get something definitive, and then we start taking a walk and talking amongst ourselves, and eventually we talk ourselves out of what we just knew 20 minutes ago. Am I right? That's what people do. We... 20 minutes ago, I knew that I knew that I knew. But then I get to talking to people, and all of a sudden, now I get shaky. And it's just interesting. It, there had to have been just a short time between the angel telling them that, and they're on their way. And somehow in that conversation, they go, yeah, you really think these disciples are really going to buy this? I mean, we know Jesus. What are, uh, and besides that, those guys, you know, you know how they see women, Right? And they're probably trying to overcome, how are we going to be convinced? How do we tell them, maybe, maybe we shouldn't just like lead that with the story, okay? Maybe we back it off and just bring it in later. And Jesus shows up and says, do not be afraid. Go quickly, tell his disciples. So, so it's like he's been eavesdropping on the conversation. He already knows that there's some wavering about us telling them that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
Fear is a great sabotager when we start taking new initiatives of faith because we start telling ourselves, okay, what if people don't believe me? What if they start questioning me? What if, I was sure about a half hour ago, but maybe, maybe I talked myself into something. Maybe it's not as I think it is. We, fear has a way of starting to strip away our faith. Faith that would cause us to step out. By the way, this plagues the Christian world. God's called the church to constantly be taking new initiatives. Okay? One of the beautiful things is, is this is about, not just, I'm not saying because I'm the pastor, I'm saying this because of the church and the type of leadership that is here. Faith is not, faith means, let me, let, me, let me share this way. Do you know the last words of a dying church? Want to hear what they are? We've never done it that way before. And why do they say that? Because they're guided by fear. Fear will kill any type of faith initiative. I'm not saying that we ought to be foolish and we ought to be crazy and just be blind in what we do, but we have to recognize it is uncomfortable pushing the fronts of faith, pushing the activity of God. It can be an uncomfortable spot, and if you're not careful, you'll be looking more to history for what you ought to do rather than looking to God. And if you're not careful, you'll find out it's not in your history, so you don't do it. And I'm just saying, hey, sometimes we have to measure what is God calling us to do, and that's just one of the things that plagues the U.S. church. They kind of say, well, we can't do that because we've never done that before. That's the, Welcome to the walk of faith. And everybody said? Yeah. Right. Number two, read it out loud. Wherever Jesus goes, can you say amen to that? Now, there's something in the story that is said that you can't appreciate unless you get into the minds of the Jewish people who were reading this. Okay? Notice two times he says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Here's the, here's the question. Jesus has, has, has died and been resurrected in Jerusalem, Correct? The disciples are all hiding in Jerusalem, correct? Why do they all need to go to Galilee to make this work? Why, why, look, we're already here, right? Why do, why, why do we all need to make a trek up to Galilee? It goes even further than this. Why did Jesus spend so much of his ministry in Galilee? I don't have time to map out all of his activity, but Jesus had a substantial uh, degree of ministry that happened in the Galilean region. In fact, 11 of the 12 disciples came from Galilee. The southern region of Israel was called Judea. That's where the educated, you know, the, the really, you know, we're the people who know what's going on. We're the educated ones. And so 11 of the disciples came from the northern region, Galilee, and only one one of the disciples came from Judea, and you might want to know who that is. His name was Judas. Kind of shows you what happens when you think you know more than the other people. But, so the question is, why all this activity back and forth up in the Galilee? Why is that? Because there was a common thought, there was a common understanding, there was an insight, and that's this. Galilee is throwaway territory. 
when the Romans were even appointing uh, authorities to oversee territory, even the Romans historically would say, wow, really, you're giving me Galilee. Well, now I know how Rome feels about me. I'm inept. There's nowhere to move up. That's a, that's a dead-end spot. The Jews would go, yeah, if you can't make it in life and you don't know who you are and you're just kind of, I tell you what, Galilee will take you. Okay? Now you think, well, how do you know this? Because if you go to the Gospel of John, when the disciples were discovering who Jesus was and they're inviting each other or, or inviting a relative or their brother to go, you need to come see this Jesus. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 46, Nazareth, this is what one of the disciples said. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, come and see, said Philip. Notice that? Galilee, you got Jesus coming from Galilee like, okay, we don't look, for Gal look to Galilee for direction and any wisdom and insight. Galilee is just sort of a, okay, they're there. But nobody wants them because, you know, they're just different. They don't fit into Jewish culture. They're not, we struggle when they show up at the temple. They just, you know, they're, they don't know the protocols. And what you see is just, Jesus said, if I go to Galilee, I change the perception of Galilee. I add value to Galilee. I add value to the people of Galilee. And it's crazy, if you've ever been to a trip to Israel, You'll find that you can, you, can spend just, you can spend almost your entire trip in northern Israel outside of Jerusalem. Most of the activity that Christians go to Israel and want to see and want to experience, they go to the Galilean region, they go to the north, and they spend all this time. And it's interesting. Why is all the tourism so much north of Jerusalem? It's because Jesus was there. Jesus adds value where he goes. And I say that, as his followers, we add value. That's the thing that we do. That's the marketplace correction. Where we work, we make the business better. Where we serve, we make it better. Where we live, we make the neighborhood better. We, we are people who don't take from a community. We are people who give to a community. We are a people who try to do things that better not just our lives, but better other people's lives. When we go to our jobs, we're not lazy. Let me just tell you something. If you're doing the bare minimum at your job, and you say, I want to be a witness for Jesus, please get a work ethic before you say anything. It's hard to make an impact, okay, when you're lazy, complacent, don't care, do the minimum. Nobody's impressed by mediocrity. Nobody fills out a card at a business and said, that was the most mediocre person that waited on me. That was the most medi mediocre construction job I would recommend them to anybody. Nobody says that. And yet some of those folks are Christians and they go, they just aren't open to the gospel. Well, yeah, because you've shut the door based on your work ethic. Listen, we add value. 
If there's a downsizing in a company, you want your name to be brought up in the room as a person that they want to figure out how to keep. You want to be so valuable that people in the room go, there's got to be a way we can keep them around. Because they do so much more than the other folks that serve here. We, we, they go above and beyond. They do things that we don't pay them to do. And we're in this downsizing. We have got to figure out while we're doing this, we have got to keep them. By the way, if you go into Isaiah chapter 58, you read about that. It says that we'll be restorer of streets with dwellings. We rebuild the ancient ruins. We make things more valuable. We make a difference. Because wherever Jesus goes, he adds values. That means we do that. And everybody said amen. Number three, read it out loud. Divine revelation. Divine revelation is a process. Now you especially see it in the context because these are Jewish people. They know, that Je- they know the story that Jesus has been risen from the dead. Even though this is 40 years later, they all know that they've heard the stories. Because remember, you had all those people who walked out of the grave. Remember that? Out of, I mean, you know, the big push of people who rose from the dead and went back home, knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm back. Okay? And their relatives are still around, and they're still walking and talking. So everybody has heard the story about supposedly this Jesus, and they have still resisted accepting him. And so now the temple's been destroyed. The city has been leveled. Okay? And many of them have not come around to receiving who Jesus is, but there is an opening. Chaos has a way of making us reevaluate what we believe and what we're going to do. And so for some, he puts in the story something that is deliberate. He says, number one, there were people, Jesus, they met Jesus. It says when they saw him, they worshiped him. How many know that's a no-brainer when you're looking at a dead guy now breathing? But, and that worship means kneeling or prostration. So they could have knelt, they could have prostrated. And it's interesting, it's also used to describe a dog who is excited that his master's come home. And you know how the dog just loves to jump all over you? Oh, come on, you know what I'm talking about. My grandkids got one of those dogs. You leave the room for an hour and come back, and he acts like you've been gone for a month. And you're like, man, I've only been gone for an hour. I mean, you know, you act like this is the great homecoming. It's been an hour. But notice this. So there are people who saw Jesus alive, and boom, they worship. They're, they're kneeling or they're prostrate. But notice this, but some doubted. I mean, you just kind of go, really? He's alive in front of you, and you're going, well, I don't know. I don't know about this. And it uses the word doubted. It means to mentally waver. It means to hesitate. So you have people who just immediately respond, then you have others who stand back. I don't know about this. And the other Gospels actually unravel some of the story for us. Remember Thomas who said, it's not enough for me to see Jesus. You guys keep telling me you saw Jesus. It's not enough to see Jesus. I want to touch Jesus. 
I want to, I want to see the wounds in his hands. I want to touch those wounds. I want to see the wound in his side, and I want to touch that wound. Remember that? It wasn't enough for him to be told that Jesus was alive. It wasn't enough even that Jesus was in the room. He had to see that. He wanted to make sure that, that he wasn't being conned or deceived. And I just say this. You have to understand there's a wide spectrum of people who received divine revelation, but it's a process. I know people who have come to this church one time, and it was an aha moment, and they accepted Jesus first Sunday, setting the foot in the door. And you know what? That's what you want to happen for everybody, right? But I know people who have been here for six, seven, eight, nine months, a year, and they're still processing. And can I tell you, listen to me. I want you to hear me. If you're one of those, listen to me. I'm okay with that. But here's the other part. Make sure you're an honest skeptic, not a dishonest one. A dishonest skeptic will always have an exit. Will always have a strategy not, not to make the decision that needs to be made. They will constantly find another reason. They will find another excuse. They will always find another challenge. And they'll say, yeah, well, but, you know, I'm not. And they just constantly have that. Listen to me. Honest skeptic. Thomas was an honest skeptic. If I see him, and I can see the hand wounds in his hands, and I can touch it, and I can see those wounds, that wound in his side, and I can touch it, he got that experience, and what was his response? It says he fell prostrate, and he said, my Lord, my God. Jesus answers honest skeptics. I don't mind you asking questions. I don't mind you saying, I need another week to process that. I need time to think about it. I need to, I need to hear another sermon. I need to hear another message. I need to make sure that you don't drop a bomb on us in another month. You know, like, oh, yeah, I, kn I knew there was something. You know, it, I need pastor. I need to see consistency. I'm like, I'm okay with that. Because I recognize that Divine revelation for some people is a process. But what I want to make sure is that you cooperate with God's, listen to me, God's process in your life. And that when he's answering, you're, you're not, ah, uh, you know, okay. That had to be coincidence. Now, come on. At some point, it's not coincidence anymore. Amen? Yeah. So, wherever you're, listen, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, some of you say, one of those days I'm going to accept Jesus. I pray every week. God, I hope it's this week. Whoever that person is, I pray. I pray that one of those days is this week for them. But if it's not, I pray they make one more step towards it. Because one of these days, it's going to be that day. And everybody said amen. Number four, read it out loud. God's authority... Now, I don't expect that to resonate with us without me giving context. They're saying, as a Jewish people, where was God? This is why God's supposed to have our back. He didn't. Where is he? Why did we're, we're told about God has this authority. Why didn't he use his authority? 
Why did, with God having all this at disposal, why did he let this happen? And he's introducing to them this concept, you're asking God about his authority and you need to know where he handed it off. He says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what he's recognizing or trying to help these Jewish people to understand is this. If you, want, if you want God's authority, you have to go through Jesus because God gave that authority, heaven and on earth, it now belongs to Jesus. You don't get to God without his son. Reject his son, you're disconnected. God has reestablished. And by the way, this is also interesting, okay? Most of you probably have not made this connection. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus was praying, and the disciples said, tell us, teach us how to pray, right? Everybody got that? And I want to walk you through, and I want you to see what Jesus at that point told them how to pray, and now what is being said. It's the Lord's Prayer. He says, our Father, which is the way it should happen. Why? Because Jesus has not been to the cross, correct? So he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He wraps it up with saying this statement. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Who did Jesus assign all that activity to? The Father. And it's done around Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6. That's where in the Sermon on the Mount, that's where it's brought in. Every Jew would have identified with that and gone, and that's the order it's supposed to be. And then you come here, and he changes it, and he says, all that to him, all the power and the glory forever. Jesus says, now that's been handed off to me. It's the same words. Now see, you and I, we've just read 20-some chapters, and so we get disconnected from this to back there. But a Jew would have picked this up, said, oh, wow. Jesus has the authority. Mm -hmm. And what, this is interesting. What, what do we mean by authority? He's talking about freedom, right, and privilege. He is saying there's a freedom. There is a right, a right to appeal to God. There's a right to bring things to God. There is the privilege of bringing it to God, but now it has to flow through his son. This is why we say things like this. We pray and then we, and listen, it's not a formula and I want to make sure that we don't legalize something, but this is why many times we say at the end of our prayer, in Jesus, does it make sense? Why do we say that? Because he's the one who has all the power and the authority now. Everybody got it? Now I know some of you are thinking, oh, so we should not say the Lord's Prayer anymore. No, I didn't say that. Okay, because there's some great elements. And I, listen, let's, let's not get legalistic. Okay, let's not get into legalism. But for these Jews, that was a critical change. It was a critical shift for them to understand that. That what they wanted in life was now going to have to come through Jesus. They needed hope. They needed restoration. They needed purpose because everything is gone and Matthew was saying, and that what you're looking for is available in Jesus. And he has the power and the authority to make that happen for you in your life. What you want has to come from him. 
I got to wrap this up really quick. Here we go. Number five, read it out loud. In the midst of tragedy, God can redirect and repurpose our lives. So what are these people supposed to do? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Does it say, teach them some of the things? It says, teach them what? Everything. Yeah. So it's not a cafeteria approach. I get to take what I like and I can leave the other stuff that I don't like. No. So this is one of the reasons I like many times to preach verse by verse. This is one of the reasons I do what I do and teach the way that I do is because it forces us to deal with scriptures that we think are uncomfortable. And somehow in American Christianity, we think every message should make me feel good. No. As I've said before, I have a job and it's twofold. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's all I do. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, so notice the word disciple. I've, I've said this so many expressions over the years, given definitions. So I'm going to give you a definition of a disciple, and I'm going I'm to wrap it up with this. Okay? I had one more point, but I need to wrap it up. So here we go. What is a disciple? I would tell you to maybe save this phrase. Disciple is biblical learning through consistent relational participation. Can I unpack that for you? Discipleship is being exposed to biblical teaching and biblical learning. And when I say through consistent, meaning this, it mean, it's, it's like eating. I need a steady diet. That's, that is my sweet spot. It's, it's the human body's sweet spot for growing. So we need to be consistent in, in our diet, in our eating habits. That's where health comes from. So it's being exposed to biblical learning consistently and through relational participation. That's why we do the connection groups. We're so grateful what this venue can do for you. Okay, But we also have another dimension of learning that does not happen until I have the ability to have conversation with somebody about it and process it. What does it look like in my life? What does it look like in your life? And so basically he was telling those Jews, it's time to accept Jesus. And what does he want you to do? Go into all the world and create meaningful relationships, listen to me, with Gentiles. The very people that you said were not welcome in your country. Since you wouldn't let them come to you, I'm going to send you to them. And he's saying, forge relationships with people consistent meaningful and the other part is there is this he's telling them they got to take the initiative let me let me just tell you something very transparent about the bridge why do we do these connection groups why do we do this the way we do it's because you have to take the initiative or you're not going to grow. We don't have the ability to trick you. We don't have the ability to bait you. We don't have the ability to confront you and corner you and threaten you and intimidate you. I have found, in fact, all that is failure. doesn't work. Your faith cannot grow unless you take the initiative. The initiative to what? Having biblical learning through consistent relational participation. 
I love you enough, now it's time for me to afflict the comfortable. Everybody ready now? And somewhere along the way, you've got to get off the expectation, well, nobody's invited me. You go to restaurants all the time where people, nobody invited you, and yet you went there. Did you know that I go to restaurants and the manager doesn't even bother to come out and tell me, hey, it was good to see you today. Unbelievable. Sat in a perfectly good restaurant and the manager didn't even come over and say it was good to see you today. I mean, you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we come up with expectations. And really what it is, is you're looking for an exit ramp. Take the initiative. It's time to grow. And that has to come from you. We'll provide the opportunity, but you have to provide the hustle. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet as we wrap up the service. Would you do that? Come on. Let's wrap up the service. Come on, would you praise him that he's a God who took the initiative with us and we can do the same. Come on, praise him right now.